0: Welcome to Meals for Maturity, Bible Talks to Help You Mature as a Follower of Jesus, by Pastor Dom Fiocco.
1: Friends, welcome to another Bible Talk from Meals for Maturity. The purpose of these Bible Talks are really designed to help supplement your main Bible teaching that you receive as you gather weekly with your church family and you sit there under God's Word being preached. I hope you're part of a church family that treasures uh, expository preaching, that is, taking a passage or a verse from Holy Scripture and putting it in its original context and then explaining it in light of the whole Bible story unfolding and then letting God's Holy Word speak uh, based on what the main point point or points are of the passage or even the verse. So really letting the passage dictate where the sermon goes and how it's best applied. And all this, of course, needs to be done through the lens of the gospel of all grace and with prayer as the Holy Spirit does his good work in us. I like what one preacher says about expository preaching. This is from a retired UK pastor, William Taylor. He writes, "'Expository preaching is the honest answer which the preacher gives "'after faithful study to these questions. "'What is the mind of the Holy Spirit in this passage?' What is its bearing on related Christian truths or on the life and conversation of the Christian himself or herself? And such expository preaching, that is, exposing God's word to God's people, it actually needs to produce action as well as to impart instruction. Or if you like, grace leads to faith. Indicatives of scripture need to lead to the imperatives, to action. The great American theologian pastor uh, Jonathan Edwards writes our people he's talking about his church our people do not so much need to have their heads stored as to have their hearts touched and they stand in need of that sort of preaching which has the greatest tendency to do this and that I think is why expository preaching should be the bread and butter of helping Christians grow as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ or if you don't eat or like bread and butter, it really should be the expository preaching, should be the ice cream and the trifle of your diet, which I think are the essential food groups. And so we turn now, with that in mind, that model of expository preaching, we turn now to the Old Testament book of Esther. We've been looking into the Godless book of Esther. Godless in God's name actually doesn't appear across the 10 chapters. But as we soon discover... His very presence is very much behind the scenes working out his good, perfect will for his people. And ultimately that means for all who trust their lives over to the Lord Jesus. So today we're going to study Esther chapter 3. So have that part of God's word ready. By chapter 3 of Esther, life for the Jewish people in exile in Susa in the Persian Empire could not be much better They've got a queen on the throne who is Jewish although she's kept that pretty hidden even from her husband the king and one of their own Mordecai has just rescued the king from a secret assassination plot which I think is better than a James Bond thriller right at the end of chapter two there. So things are looking pretty good for the Jewish people who've chosen to stay behind in exile rather than return to their homeland of Jerusalem and start to rebuild their lives and their city and their temple. If you know the Bible story under Nehemiah and Ezra and the Zed man, Zerubbabel. But entering now onto the stage in the story of Esther is a man called Haman, which sounds a bit like hangman, which is, I think, no coincidence. So let's meet Haman and hear Esther chapter 3 read to us by Jen.
0: And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Per, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the instruction to destroy, to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion.
1: So Haman is made Prime Minister of Persia, the the second in charge under King Xerxes. We're not told what he's done to deserve this promotion or this honour. Maybe he did something worthwhile for the king and his empire. Maybe he just gave a nice political donation so the king mm, wants to keep him on his side. But we are told that with such power given to Haman comes this craving for attention and pride and recognition. Haman requires people to to bow down and to acknowledge his greatness. And that seems fine for most people across the empire, except for a certain Jew named Mordecai who can't stomach the idea of paying homage to Haman. Again, we're not told why uh, Mordecai doesn't curtsy before Haman whenever he walks by. We are told that it's the other court officials, however, who Take notice of Mordecai not doing any bowing down, not taking a knee at the start of a game. It's a little bit like the story of Daniel, if you know that part of God's word, where Daniel is dobbed in for praying to the Lord God instead of praying to the Babylonian king, as if that would do him a lot of good. Well, here in Esther, in in verses 3 and 4, perhaps we find more evidence of of a widespread anti-Semitism happening in Susa. And so they tell Haman, Hey, Haman, have you noticed that Mordecai is not taking any notice of you? He doesn't bow before you like the rest of us. You see, even in Persia, we seem to have this virtual signalling going on. Years ago, my my wife and I bought a a Hyundai i30, a car. It was nothing special. It was just the, the car we could afford to buy at the time especially after our kids had had learned to drive and we we didn't need the people mover to move move them around and spend a fortune on fuel. Anyway, we bought our i30 and we started to drive it around and then all of a sudden we noticed that lots of people were driving i30s. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You, You buy a car and then you see your brand of car at every set of lights that you stop at. And you think, why did the entire population start buying the same car as us? Well, that seems to be what happens to Haman. See, before he was told about this insolent Jew, Mordecai, he never even noticed him bowing down before him or bowing to him. But now everywhere he goes, so he orders his coffee, buys his lunch, goes to a meeting, stops at the traffic lights. He can't help but see Mordecai standing upright, tall, not bowing his knee. And so he becomes obsessed by Mordecai and his refusal to bow down. And Haman, in an outburst of pride and insecurity and fury, vows not just to wipe Mordecai out for such insolence, such terrible insubordination, but he decides here's a good chance to wipe out all of Mordecai's people. Here's a chance for Haman to really flex his muscles and show off his powers. Why doesn't he work out a plan to not just take Mordecai down? Why stop there? Like Hitler and others centuries later, Haman has this uh, evil, outrageous hatred for a particular race of people and the Jews are at the top of his hate list. And Haman seeks to do all he can to destroy, kill and annihilate the Jewish people. As early as 1933, in a German newspaper... Dr. Joseph Goebbels, the Minister for Propaganda uh, in Germany, he published an article in in a newspaper and he wrote this advice. When addressed by a Jew, act as though you do not hear him properly and stare into the distance. If this should not prove effective, let your gaze travel coldly up and down his outlandish body. If he still does not catch on, remark, Sir... There must be some mistake. You have not yet immigrated. Mark Twain once said about anti-Semitism, a hatred of the Jews, it is the swollen envy of pygmy minds. I think that's the case for any form of racism, personally. Like a, a cancerous tumour, Haman's hatred toward Mordecai has grown to focus on the entire race of the people of Judah, and so we read in verse seven, a lot is cast, like a dice, if you like. A dice is rolled to determine the massacre day for the Jews. And so once more in the book of Esther, a royal decree is issued, never to be reversed. So on the thirteenth day in the month of Ada, we it would become illegal, it would become legal rather to murder the Jews. But poor old Haman, he has to wait 11 months until this time. And ironically, the date actually falls on the eve of the Jewish Passover festival. So what is meant to be this great time of celebration, remembering the supernatural deliverance of God's people out of of slavery in Egypt? Instead, it now becomes or destined to be this day of tragic annihilation. So the day is chosen. And then Haman moves in to manipulate the king. You see, Haman is very much a smooth operator and he certainly is a man with plenty of money to back his cause. But Haman really needs the king's permission to enable this massacre plan to work out. And so he mentions to King Xerxes that there is this... uh, troublesome race of people, and they're scattered all through the king's great empire, and their laws are different from the perfect Persian laws. And basically, it might be time, O great king, to get rid of this scourge from your kingdom. A scattered and separated people, O king, means trouble. There are rebels in your backyard. Let me do something about it for you, my friend. Not once, by the way, does Haman mention to the king which group of people he is talking about. And tragically, sadly, not once does the king ask. And to top it all off, like a a cherry on top of the ice cream, if you like that sort of thing, Haman even offers to pay for the privilege of execution rights. He knows at this point in time that various wars against Greece has hit the GDP of Persia. And so his generous offer of 10,000 talents of silver, which we're told outside of the Bible is the equivalent of around 60% of the annual revenue coming into Persia, well, this sort of amount will go a long way to buy the king's royal stamp on the execution documents. And Haman probably figured by the end of it all, he would come out okay again because he'll get the assets and the wealth of the Jews because, well, they won't be really needing it, will they? Now across the Bible, God never has anything good to say about people buying people with money. And Haman really does stand in the shoes of Judas as he buys the Lord Jesus Christ also for silver. The king's signet ring here signals that Haman has the authority of the king. And so the Jews are handed an official death sentence. Men, women, children of Jewish heritage will be slaughtered. And news spreads to all corners of the empire. So their postage system seems much quicker than ours, doesn't it? And the chapter ends with a king and a prime minister feasting once more while the city of Susa is in turmoil over the stupidity of such a royal death decree. A Jew might be queen, but her identity is kept secret. A Jew might have saved the king in chapter 2, but his identity as a Jew and his refusal to bow down to Haman is now a costly mistake. The tension mounts. What will happen next? It's uh, fascinating, well, I think so anyway, that that across the story of Esther, the unknown author leaves us with only one person who's given two names. That is Esther herself. In chapter 2, verse 7, she is called by her Hebrew name, Hadassah. And then we're given her Persian name, Esther. From that point on, one Bible scholar, Lee Riken, puts it like this. Esther is a passive young woman who tries to live in two worlds. Once she is chosen to be part of the royal harem, she has an identity crisis. This is made clear when she enters the story. She comes from a religious background, but the whole emphasis in the king's harem is on physical beauty. Esther fits right in to the pagan ethos. I don't know if it's reading too much into the story, but perhaps the author is hinting at Esther living in two worlds. She's got the Jewish world she was raised in by Uncle Mordecai, though her faith in God and her practice of Jewish piety seems pretty limited so far in the story. But now she's living in this pagan Persian world, blending in, if you like, to the godless culture that's surrounding her. And by giving us her two names early in chapter 2, are we being shown that this young woman has two identities? And eventually in the story, though, her two worlds will actually end up colliding. Are we meant to think about our two worlds? Citizens of heaven, yet paying Caesar's taxes on earth. As followers of the Lord Jesus, we are always living with this tension, aren't we? The tension that we are to live in the world, but not to be of the world. We might live in a Persian empire or the 21st century equivalent, but our true empire, our real citizenship, is a heavenly one, as Philippians chapter 3 reminds us. Or remember what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3. Since then, he's talking to the Christians, Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Esther might be ignoring the two worlds she lives in, as Hadassah, the Hebrew girl, and Esther, the Persian queen, but as Christians, we can't do that. Because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, our citizenship, our focus, our passports, if you like, are stamped with the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and our final home will be a heavenly, eternal kingdom. And the Christian life, you see, will be a tale of two cities. We live in this earthly city, wherever you're living, an earthly city that is opposed to God and his laws. And we are to seek out the heavenly city still to come, but very much as real as the air we breathe. Esther, at this point in our story, is not a great example for us of living the already but not yet life in Christ. But still, let this chapter remind us that this is God's call upon our lives if you are found trusting in Christ. Upon your conversion, God might not have given you two names like Esther, but he has given you and me two postcodes to live in. That is, two worlds to work out what life looks like as a follower of Jesus, two kingdoms that you and I are to exist in. And I am more than convinced that the longer I live the Christian life in these two worlds, that belonging to a local church is one of the keys to living as a Christian, A living as a Christian who is already a citizen of a city that cannot be shaken, a city that lasts for eternity, a city more glorious than anything the Persian Empire could produce. So what are you doing? Let me ask you, what are you doing to help other fellow travellers stay focused on living in these two worlds and not compromising our true identity which is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we live our lives in our earthly cities, would you please help us to keep seeking the city which is to come by faith and to remember our inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, that you have reserved in heaven for us as we continue to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ.